As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Eric Gaskell, and you're listening to the Distorted History Podcast. To speak the truth, both truth, frankly... And boldly. I can give you merry tales and joyous laughter. Shameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror. A long struggle for freedom. It really is a revolution. I started out the Sound Story side series by talking about Alice in Chains' Jar of Flies. Then last year, I did a kind of career overview of one of the more forgotten about grunge band Screaming Trees, so I figured why not just keep going and cover all the major Seattle bands and their major albums, which means I'm going to have to down the line not only do Nirvana's Nevermind and Pearl Jam's 10, but I should also revisit Alice in Chains for Dirt. Today, though, I choose to focus on another of my favorite Seattle bands, Soundgarden, and their massively successful Super Unknown. But before I dive into the album and its creation, I want to first acknowledge some of my sources. A major source for this episode was an article by Stacy Anderson titled, Get Your Self-Control, The Oral History of Soundgarden's Super Unknown. I also relied upon Corey Groh's 2014 interview with Chris Cornell for Rolling Stone, as well as articles by Stevie Chick for Kerrang!, Ed Power for The Independent, and Aaron Gorgon for Vice.com, all of which, along with any other sources I used, will be available on this podcast Twitter page. With all that being said, let's begin. Soundgarden were kind of hometown heroes in the Seattle scene, as they were the first to actually get signed to a major label. However, since then it had been a rough couple of years for the band. While things had been going good when they got signed by A&M, not long after releasing their major label debut, Louder Than Love, founding bassist Hiro Yamamoto decided to leave the band and go back to school. This was a rough blow, which was only made worse when the guy they hired to replace Hiro on tour was such a disaster that they had to fire him as soon as they got back to Seattle. So they hired Ben Shepard, who played in a few punk bands around town and was friends with drummer Matt Cameron. He was a good fit, 
and with this new lineup, Soundgarden would set about writing and recording their follow-up album Bad Motorfinger. It was during this process, though, that the guys from Soundgarden and the rest of the Seattle music scene would suffer a tragic loss when 24-year-old Andrew Wood of Mother Lovebone died of an overdose. This struck both guitarist and vocalist Chris Cornell and guitarist Kim Thale hard, as they had been close with Andy. Cornell in particular was deeply affected because he and Wood had been roommates. Andy was, according to many who knew him, a born rock star. He was a natural flamboyant over-the-top frontman that some would say was a combination of David Bowie and Axl Rose. For a while, it even looked like he was going to fulfill his destiny, as his band Mother Lovebone had clearly attracted a lot of major label attention. In fact, their deal with Polygram in 1988 was notable for being the most lucrative deal for a Seattle band up to that point. The tragedy was, though, Andy would never get to perform in stadiums full of people, like he had long dreamt of, as he would die just before Mother Lovebone's debut album was released. Wood for many years had been struggling with an addiction to heroin. He knew how dangerous this was, and had even made a point to go into rehab to save his life and so he could be clean and ready to hit the road to capitalize on the success their debut album was sure to have. Then one night, Andy tragically fell back into old habits. What made this especially bad was that thanks to his stint in rehab, Andy had lost his tolerance. He didn't know this though, and as a result, he accidentally overdosed on the drug, which put him in a deep coma from which he never awake. Chris Cornell had been out of town when this happened, but he flew back to Seattle to say his goodbyes to Andy before they turned off the machines that had been keeping him alive. For Cornell, that moment was, quote, the death of the innocence of the scene. Wood's death seemed to be hard on pretty much the entire Seattle music scene, as he and his band were kind of the darlings. Everyone loved them. His bandmates Jeff Ament and Stone Gassard were so crushed by Andy's death that they even stopped playing music for a while. It would be Chris Cornell that brought them back, though, when he suggested that they should make a tribute album to their fallen comrade. This led to the formation of a kind of pre-supergroup, as the musicians involved weren't all that famous yet, but would be in the years to come. Cornell and Matt Cameron of Soundgarden joined forces with Jeff Ament and Stone Gitsard of Mother Lovebone, as well as with members of the band they would soon form with guitarist Mike McCready and newly arrived vocalist Eddie Vedder. They would call this group Temple of the Dog after a line from Mother Lovebone's Man with Golden Words. While the whole project was done to honor Woods, songs like Say Hello to Heaven and Reach Down were written specifically in response to Andy's death. Despite this upheaval, Soundgarden would finish up work on Bad Motorfinger, an album probably deserving of its own episode, which would become a bit of a breakout hit for the band. The album, which features two more songs inspired by Woods' death, Outshined in Mind Ride, was released in the same month Smells Like Teen Spirit Conquered the World and Pearl Jam's 10 came out. Partially because of this wave of attention directed towards Seattle, and because it's just a really good album, Bad Motorfinger would go platinum and earn Soundgarden a Grammy nomination for Best Metal Performance. This success even landed the band a spot on the main stage of Lollapalooza. They were joined by their friends in Pearl Jam, who had enjoyed instant and massive success with their debut album 10. The two groups were tight and would oftentimes stand on the side of the stage watching as the others performed. Even with the tragedy that seemed so baked into the so-called grunge movement, things were looking up. It seemed like almost everyone from Seattle was finding success all of a sudden. According to Cornell, quote, It was really surreal for us. 
it was like, wow, all our dreams are coming true in ways we maybe would have never expected. We were just an indie band, and that's what we thought we'd always be. That just because they had tasted success, that didn't mean they were about to rest on their laurels. They next had to record their follow-up album to Bad Motorfinger, and it would surprisingly, even to the members of the band, take on a significantly different shape than their previous efforts. The band had formed in 84, and had released their debut EP, Screaming Life, in 87. From there, they had kind of perfected their brand of heavy, on-time signature heavy metal with the release of Bad Motorfinger. With that accomplished, they seemed to subconsciously begin pushing beyond the boundaries of what they had attempted before. You could even hear some of this with Cornell's side project Temple of the Dog, as he pulled a bit from his roots in the Beatles and Pink Floyd. Super Unknown, then, was according to Cornell, quote, One of the most dramatic shifts in what we were doing musically. I don't think I realized it at the time. As the band arrived at Bad Animal Studios in July 1993, they felt the pressure to prove they weren't just where they were because of where they'd come from. It's not that they minded being grouped in with the other Seattle bands, it's just that they wanted to prove that they had their own identity and weren't just part of a fad or popular because they were a flavor of the month. While Chris Cornell is often credited as a primary songwriter as he did indeed write the vast majority of the lyrics for Soundgarden and quite a bit of the music as well, he wanted all the members of the band to contribute. For example, he insisted that bassist Ben Shepard actually record the vocals for half, the Led Zeppelin-esque Middle Eastern slash India flavored song he'd written and brought into the band. Cornell believed it was best if they stayed true to the original intentions of the song. And since Ben had done such a good job with the vocals on the demo, it didn't matter that he himself wasn't anywhere on the track, as long as it was what was right for the song. So as was typical with Soundgarden, when it came to Super Unknown, there would be no main songwriter, as they would all contribute. What was different from their previous efforts, though, was that they were mostly bringing in complete songs instead of just ideas that they would jam on until they came up with a structure. Each member basically more or less worked independently, then brought in their demos for the other guys to listen to. For guitarist Kim Thale, this system led to a, quote, very dynamic process, since you had four guys writing and producing material and then providing criticism. The only rule they seemed to have, according to Ben Shepard, was, quote, never play the same thing twice. Thale would echo this, saying, quote, we don't like to repeat ourselves, we like to entertain each other. This meant that they were trying to do new and different things. The relatively recently arrived Ben Shepard would help to facilitate this when he brought in songs in weird, unusual tunings. This then inspired the others to start coming up with songs in weird tunings as well. Both Mailman and Limo Wreck are written in the odd CGDGBE tuning, where only the top two strings are tuned down, while Head Down and Half are tuned to CGCGGE, and My Wave and The Day I Tried to Live are both played in the highly unusual EEBBBB tuning. The album also features songs done in Soundgarden's now typical odd time signatures like 5463 and 158. While the music was a product of all the members of the band, most of the lyrics would be written by Cornell, who said he always tried to shape his lyrics to the music, by which he meant he let the music inspire what he was going to sing instead of coming in with the words already written. A big part of this was the result of listening to the entire Beatles catalog in his youth. As a child, he didn't grasp that there were different guys singing on different songs, so he just figured that's how you made music. You shape your vocals and your style to fit what the song needed. The music then told you what it needed. 
Yet while they were more than happy to listen to the music to find out what it needed, the guys from Soundgarden were less interested in listening to their producer and what he said they needed. Soundgarden as a band, especially by this point, just didn't really see the need to have a producer. To them, a producer was just someone the label demanded they had with them in the studio. So to appease the label, Soundgarden chose to partner with producer Michael Beinhorn, who'd recently worked with Soul Asylum and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, which demonstrated to the guys in Soundgarden that Beinhorn didn't have his own trademark sound that he would force onto the band. That, however, wouldn't prevent the two sides from clashing during the production of Super Unknown. Beinhorn didn't help matters when he started things off by telling them they had to work harder and write better songs after hearing some of their early demos. For Beinhorn, this was simply an attempt to get the band to make the kind of record he thought they were capable of. However, this proclamation ruffled some feathers, especially since they didn't really know him and what he meant by this criticism. In addition to being someone they never worked with, which meant there wasn't really a comfort level there, Beinhorn was also extremely methodical and granular in his approach. While the band was more used to pretty much hitting the ground running when it came to recording, he had them painstakingly choose every piece of equipment, including the mics they would use all the way down to the type of tape they were going to record on. Beinhorn also demanded they record take after take of each part, no matter the quality, while the members of the band were used to nailing their parts after a couple of tries and then being done with it. This conflict eventually got to the point that whenever Beinhorn would pop in over the mic from the control booth to make a comment or to demand yet another take, the band would break into kumbaya and drown out whatever the producer was trying to say. Once they managed to frustrate Beinhorn enough that as he stormed out of the control room, he swung its big heavy soundproof door with enough oomph that it just kind of kept going and took itself off the hinges. The main result of this conflict, other than damage to the studio, was the members of Soundgarden circling the wagons during these sessions. Basically, they became closer as a band during the recording of Super Unknown because they had someone they were unified against. Now, that's not to say it was all bad times. There were plenty of laughs to be had, and they had more than a few guests pop in and hang out. Members of both Pearl Jam and Nirvana stopped by during these sessions, as did Josh Homme, who wanted to play ping pong with the guys. Billy Corgan, after something happened to his tour bus, had to borrow some of their equipment, and while he was doing so, he came to check out what they were doing. Johnny Cash even paid them a visit, but strangest of all, was Bill Nye the Science Guy, who they invited to come by and see a real recording studio as a part of an episode he was making on sound. The album they finally came out of the studio with, Super Unknown, would have a staggering 15 songs on it, basically taking up all the space that was available on CDs at the time. It had so many tracks largely because they didn't really want to argue about what should or should not be on the album, as there was not 100% consensus on what would or would not make the cut. The result then was a diverse album, which is a departure from the more thick and sludgy metal of Bad Motorfinger. Super Unknown by contrast lands more in the hard rock territory, with tracks that dip into other genres as well. Now, that's not to say it's completely absent of straight-up metal tracks, as both Mailman and Fourth of July are basically Black Sabbath-style doom metal. Fourth of July is apocalyptic in its imagery, while on the other hand, Mailman seems rooted in a very real-world phenomenon. You see, in the late 80s and early 90s, America was witness to a series of mass shootings. I know, familiar, right? At that time, though, for many Americans, hearing about these occurrences on the nightly news was their first experience with such events. 
while terrifying and random, many of these shootings seemed to have something in common, and that was that they tended to happen at places where the shooter worked, and many of these killers worked for the postal service. This then gave birth to the term going postal, and was likely the inspiration for this song. These shootings would be investigated and it would be later discovered that one of the potential causes for this violence was the Postal Service fostering a cruel and abusive working relationship between bosses and their workers. This was the result of a reduction of subsidies from the government and political pressure to make the USPS more cost-effective and self-sufficient. Yeah, this stuff ain't new, folks. The only way to do this was to squeeze more labor out of the workers they already had which meant supervisors and middle managers now had to lean even harder on the people below them, effectively creating an atmosphere that one such manager described as a, quote, pressure cooker because they didn't, quote, have the time to practice human relations skills. These managers set unrealistic goals for their workers, punished them without warning, and retaliated against anyone who filed grievances. The workers had no recourse to combat these tactics, and there was no system in place to determine or remove bad managers. So once they were in power, managers were more or less free to make demands and punish their workers as they saw fit. As a result, punishments varied wildly from location to location, and could be for the slightest infraction, with one worker being suspended from work for seven days for talking loudly and saying the word damn while talking to themselves. Then there was the case of the female mail carrier who, at six months pregnant, fell on some concrete while delivering the mail, causing her to lose her baby, only to receive a letter of reprimand from her superiors for falling down on the job. This was a self-perpetuating toxic culture, that as workers who had been on the receiving end of such authoritarian practices, when they rose to managerial positions, opted to continue the same practices, in a philosophy that Postmaster General Anthony Frank would describe in 1992 as, quote, I ate dirt for 20 years, now it's your turn to eat dirt. Now, of course, this does not in any way whatsoever excuse or justify the mass shooters, but it was this kind of anger and frustration that Cornell was attempting to tap into with Mailman. In addition to the aforementioned metal tracks, Soundgarden would also feature more of a punk rock style song and kickstand. While Thale was responsible for the music, Cornell wrote their lyrics about his mountain bike, which he'd spent a lot of time riding with Jeff and Ment after Andy Wood's death. According to Jeff, the two would just go out at night to some local Seattle parks, ride through the hills, and then ultimately end up on the beach where they would light a campfire and drink while just talking. Ament has said that he and Chris grew closer during that time, as they processed their grief and figured out how to move on. The album would also feature a share of heavy hard rock songs like Let Me Drown, which according to Cornell, was born out of his sense that they needed a kind of mid-tempo riff-based rock song to play live in concert. The structure of their live shows was something that was always in the back of his mind while they were writing albums. In a similar vein was the track My Wave, which came together at the very end of their time in the studio. By that point, they'd actually started rehearsing the songs to play live when Cornell started playing this one riff and the whole band just kind of jumped in. So seeing as how clearly everyone liked the riff, they decided they should just flesh it out and add it to the album. Then you have a track like Spoonman, which wasn't even originally meant to be a Soundgarden song. Chris had originally written it in response to a series of song titles Pearl Jam bassist Jeff Ament had written on a cassette on the set of the movie singles. The song titles were meant to represent what Matt Dillon's character had been creating since he lost his band. 
they were just a series of cool-sounding titles to show the audience this guy had gotten more soulful, but Cornell was inspired by the names and wanted to make them into actual songs. It was just something he did for fun and as a kind of present for filmmaker Cameron Crowe. However, after hearing this demo, Kim Thale approached Chris and told him that he thought it would be a fun song for the band to do, so they decided to record it and put it on the album. Then Chris's wife at the time, who was also the band's manager, reached out to artist, a street musician, who had been immense inspiration for the song title, and asked him to play on the track. Artist accepted, and when he came into the studio, after laying out his various types and sizes of spoons and lengths of metal, he began to perform which consisted of slapping the pieces against his own body in a percussive manner, but he wasn't gentle about it. Artis really beat himself up, to the point that according to producer Michael Beinhorn, there was soon, quote, blood flying everywhere. Artis, though, was not really a fan of the song when he finally heard it, although he does feel honored to have a Grammy Award-winning song dedicated to him, even if he wasn't actually named when they won the award something that actually bothers Ben Shepard, who feels that artists should actually get a Grammy Award of his own, especially since he performed on the track. There's even some hints of psychedelic rock in tracks like Super Unknown, Head Down, and most notably Black Hole Sun, which would unquestionably go on to be their biggest hit. When they started working on the track, though, they weren't even sure if it should be a Soundgarden song. In fact, Kim Thale recalls having a problem with the arpeggiated opening riff, and thinking that it wasn't really his style. Cornell, meanwhile, didn't even know what the song was really about. The phrase Black Hole Sun was simply a result of him mishearing a news anchor one time. While that's not what was actually said, the idea of a Black Hole Sun was something that his imagination played around with. Then, while driving home from the studio one night, he basically wrote the lyrics in his head, stream of consciousness style, as he tried to capture the feel of the music which made it even more surprising to him that such a large audience embraced it the way that they did. Then when it came time to record his vocals for the song, after a day of attempting it over and over again, Chris still wasn't happy with his performance. So Beinhardt, while not really agreeing with him, supported Chris's decision and allowed him to try again a week later, which would be the performance that is on the actual record. According to Cornell, there were elements of the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, and Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd in his vocal performance on that track. It was at this point, when everything came together, that the members of Soundgarden started to realize they had something special on their hands. In fact, founding bassist Hiro Yamamoto, while visiting his old bandmates in the studio after hearing Black Holt's Sun for the first time, immediately told them that that was their hit song. As for the overall feel and vibe of the record, most people would say it's pretty dark. This is especially true of tracks like The Gloomy and Brooding Fell on Black Days. According to Cornell, this track was inspired by the thought, quote, No matter how happy you are, you can wake up one day without any specific thing occurring to bring you into a darker place, and you'll just be in a darker place anyway. To me, that was always a terrifying thought, because that's something that, as far as I know, we don't necessarily have control over. Yet despite this, and Super Unknown's in general dark atmosphere and subject matter, Cornell would state that it wasn't like he was in an especially bad place at the time, saying, quote, I think that I always struggled with depression and isolation, so those could come out. I think that the mood of Seattle to me and the way that I always interpreted that mood was something that was always a little bit introspective and dark, and I wouldn't say depressing, but introspective in a way that could be moodier and darker. With that being said, Super Unknown has its share of oddly uplifting tracks, like Ben Shepard's Head Down, 
which while it sounds like it's in the same gloomy vein, it shifts gears at the end. The Day I Tried to Live is another one that many don't seem to realize it's meant to be a hopeful song. According to Cornell, it's about, quote, The day I actually tried to open up myself and experience everything that's going on around me, as opposed to blowing it all off and hiding in a cave. Another song people may misunderstand is the final track, Like Suicide, because the lyrics aren't metaphorical, they're actually quite literal. The song was inspired by an incident which occurred while Chris was recording a demo of a song in his basement. On that day, as he was walking upstairs to take a break, he heard a loud thump. When he went to investigate the cause, he looked out and saw a female Robin had flown into his window and broken her neck. So not wanting to watch the poor creature suffer, he grabbed the brick and used it to quickly put her out of her misery. So it's not really a song about suicide, as it's a song about something that actually happened, and seeing beautiful things leave the world too soon. While Bad Motorfinger had been more or less their breakout album, as it was their first to go platinum, Super Unknown would push Soundgarden into the mainstream consciousness. When the album was released on the 8th of March 1994, it would debut at number 1 and eventually go platinum 5 times. The other members of the Seattle scene were excited for their friends. Soundgarden, after all, had been the first of the bunch to sign to a major label, so they were all happy to see them get recognized by the wider world. Jeff Ament was especially happy to see Soundgarden finally experiencing the kind of success Nirvana had with Nevermind and his own band had experienced with Ten. This was the kind of success he felt they deserved. Super Unknown would spawn five singles, Spoon Man, The Day I Tried to Live, Black Hole Sun, My Wave, and Fell on Black Days, and two Grammy wins, including one for Black Hole Sun, which spent seven weeks in the top spot on the mainstream rock chart. Then its creepy, borderline disturbing music video would also win an MTV VMA for Best Metal Slash Hard Rock Video and a Clio Award for Alternative Music Video. At the time of Super Unknown's release, Cornell remarked that it would be nice in 15 years to hear that Soundgarden had influenced an era of music, and it's pretty safe to say that they did. Soundgarden wasn't done making music themselves though. In 1996, they would release another successful album titled Down on the Upside. But following that release, the band would disband for more than 10 years, before finally returning to the studio to create 2012's King Animal. Unfortunately though, that would be their last album, as once again the tragedy that seemed so baked into the grunge movement from the beginning would raise its ugly head again. In Detroit on the 17th of May 2017, after Soundgarden performed at the Fox Theater, police officers responded to a call at the MGM Grand Hotel about an apparent suicide. Chris Cornell at 52 had taken his own life. In the days and weeks before his death, friends who had talked with Chris didn't sense anything was off. He seemed in good spirits. He had plans for things he wanted to do, both as a solo artist and with Soundgarden. He was even enjoying his time touring with his old band again. On that night, though, while he was on the phone with his wife, Vicky, she noticed that he was slurring his words. Chris then mentioned that he may have taken too much Anavan, an anti-anxiety medication that is used by recovering addicts because it also treats substance withdrawal symptoms. Cornell had long had issues with drugs and alcohol use, saying that he had been doing drugs daily as early as 13 before checking himself into rehab in 2002. The issue with Anivan is, in addition to its other uses, in high doses, it's also known to cause, quote, 
disinhibited and dangerous behaviors that can include driving while intoxicated, committing crimes, and even attempting suicide. As a result, experts have stated, quote, prolonged use or misuse of Anivan can exasperate negative feelings in people with depression or a history of suicide ideation, which is all not to say that Anivan would have been the sole cause for Cornell's suicide, but it definitely could have contributed to it. Chris Cornell's unexpected death left the remaining musicians who had also emerged from Seattle in the late 80s and early 90s confused as they once again had to mourn the loss of one of their own, something which Cornell himself had been familiar with and had stated that the tragedy of losing people like Andy Wood and Kurt Cobain, who had committed suicide himself not long after Super Unknown had been released, for Chris wasn't so much the loss of the person or the relationship, but the reality that he would never get to hear them again and would never have the opportunity to be inspired by some new creative thing they had come up with. According to Cornell himself then, this tension between losing friends and people who inspired him with their creativity, while simultaneously seeing others create new and amazing things, created a kind of conflict for him that he had never been able to fully resolve. Speaking on this issue and how it affected his music, he would state, quote, Part of my memory of every record, and certainly super unknown, there's an eeriness in there, a kind of unresolvable sadness or indescribable longing that I've never really tried to isolate and define and fully understand. But it's always there. It's like a haunted thing. For others like Jerry Cantrell of Alice in Chains, who had lost his own friend and lead singer Lane Staley to a heroin overdose, he would recall how much it helped him personally whenever Chris talked about his own issues with addiction and depression, as it helped Cantrell to know that others were out there going through the same thing. For that bravery, he always respected Chris, in addition to his admiration of him having his own recognizable voice and sound, stating, quote, Nobody else sounds like that guy. Nobody will. Cantrell would continue stating, quote, There is a space now and forever empty because of that. It's never going to make sense, it's never going to feel right, and it's always going to hurt. Thank you for listening to Distorted History. Please rate and review the podcast, that really helps. Also, if you want to tell me what you want me to research, or if you want to feel special and get episodes a week before everyone else, go to patreon.com slash distortedhistory. So if you have a specific episode topic you want me to cover, be it lore, an album, a band, or even a historic topic, the best way to get me to go down that rabbit hole is to go to patreon.com slash distortedhistory. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at distortedhistory minus the Y, which is also where I post all the sources for this and all the other episodes. Links are in the description. Thank you once again for listening. Until next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.